verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Father, please open our eyes and open our minds, and please uh, affect our wills to where we do want to live out your word as best we can, as best you've taught us. We thank you, Father, for this, your word, and this day that is to your glory, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We are uh, on the sixth of seven messages regarding Christian materialism, and we started with God is immaterial, and so our series on Christian materialism began with the God who is invisible, and we then went on to angels are incidental, uh, men are images, work is inescapable. And last time we talked about property is incendiary. And then today I'm going to talk about the law. And the title is God's Law is Ingenious. And it really is. And I hope that you'll see that kind of as we talk a little bit more about it here. But uh, I want to begin by running through all Ten Commandments, just kind of giving a brief overview of what each one entails. And so the first is... You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. But the first commandment really is best understood if you realize that the prior verse is a preface to that commandment, as well as to all the commandments. But the prior verse says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then the first commandment is stated, you shall have no other gods before me. So there are two aspects to the preface that I want to comment on. First, 
I am the Lord your God. This is non-negotiable. God isn't asking to be our Lord. He isn't asking to be our God. He's informing us that He is our Lord and God. Now, it's true that He was speaking to the uh, Jews at this time. And yet, we know in Acts where Paul speaks to all of us saying, these times God has winked at. In other words, things have changed. God had created all of mankind, and yet He really left all of mankind to go about their way. He drew out Noah. Then He drew out Abraham. Then He drew out the Jewish nation. He was always carving out some subset of people. But with Christ, He has embraced the whole earth and told us that He has embraced the whole earth. Yet He still does carve out His elect, but yet He has proclaimed lordship, godship over all the earth, all of mankind. Everything is His. And then he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So see, God is speaking to the Jews and He's saying, I am the Lord your God and yet I love you. I have saved you. I've demonstrated my love for you by saving you. And so see, Analogous to us in our time is Christ. The salvation of the Jews out of the oppressor, Pharaoh, is something that we've experienced by being rescued from our oppressor, Satan, and sin. So we live out what the Jews experienced. It's, it's really quite amazing when you see how God weaves so much that has happened through time, and we see it, we experience it, we see the types that were put there in the Old Testament for our benefit. The uh, uh, author Gary North wrote a book called The Sinai Strategy, and in it he has this quote that I want to share. Men can choose to ignore the requirements of the law, but God dealt definitively in Egypt and in the Red Sea with those who flagrantly and defiantly reject the rule of His law. So see, it's always been binding upon man. That's why God rescued these Jews and then had them displace the Canaanites. And yet He withheld them for all that time, saying that their cup of sin is not yet full. And yet when it was full, He ejected them from the land in a, in a very, very gruesome way. The Israelites exterminated those people. That's what they were called to do by God. So see, God owns us all not just those that proclaim faithfulness to Him and love of Him, but everybody, everybody that breathes. All of this earth was made by Him and is ruled by Him. So now the second one, verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image. And then it goes on. But see, man was made in the image of God. We were made in God's image. We are the lesser entity in that arrangement because we were made by God. So when we make God, when we make idols and proclaim them God, who's the lesser entity then? It's the idol. We are making God subservient to us by making an idol of Him. And we also make God an it when we make God an idol, as opposed to the person that He is. God is a Him. God is not an it. God made us in His image 
And by making us in his image, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, God personalized us. And as persons, he treats us with dignity, and he expects us to treat one another with dignity. We don't always, but he expects us to. That is part and parcel of being human, being made in his image. Yet, us making God, images of God, depersonalizes him. And so, see, this is one fundamental way in which we are different from God. We cannot create like he can create. He created us, and it made us something so much more than what we would have been. Yet we create, and it makes God so much less than what he is. So we lack the ability to create. We can procreate. God has given us that role on the earth, but we're not creating. We're just fulfilling our role. We're doing what God has designed us and instructed us to do. So see, that's the second one. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, we uh, popularly understand this as swear words, profaning God's name, taking it in vain. And this is true. This is what it means. But it means more. And everyone in the Old Testament knew that it meant more. But in our times, we've kind of lost this ability really to understand this because it's so foreign to our culture. But God honored the Jews by letting them know his name. He proclaimed his name, I am, and it is transliterated as Jehovah. And yet the Jews were so awed by that that they refused to speak it. And so they essentially lost the ability to pronounce it. We don't even know now how that name is pronounced because we don't have audio recordings from that time. They would not say God's name. And yet, here we are in our time, and we are free, encouraged to say the name. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, 16 times the apostles proclaimed, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And see, that has power. You remember the story about the man who tried to make use of that power, and the demon said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And then he attacks him. See, he was trying to misuse God's name. He was invoking the power that comes with the name of Christ, and he was doing it without any idea of what he was doing. He was playing with dynamite, and he got blown up because of it. That's what taking God's name in vain is. It's not just treating it idly, as we see many in our culture doing, and many, even Christians, it's sad to say. But... It's about improperly invoking the power of God and attempting to use God to accomplish our ends. That is power religion. That is not Christianity. God said also, uh, he who comes to me must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So see, again, we must not confuse God with some impersonal force or power. God is a person. We must relate to him as a person. I, I know myself, I fall prey to this. I try to view the word, and I'm, and I'm almost trying to uh, decode it, like it's a code book. And all I have to do is learn these magic codes. No, no, it's not like that. God wants you to learn his word. And he has uh, a lot of rational, causal relations in his word. But mostly he wants you to know him. And if he feels that you're beginning to treat him like a lucky rabbit's foot, then he will fail you intentionally to get your attention, to say, wait a minute here. You think you can manipulate me. You are mistaken. 
I will not be manipulated. So that's really what the third commandment is also about. Not just taking his name in vain, but misusing it, trying to use it for your own ends. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, this fourth commandment hearkens all the way back to creation because then he goes on to say, uh, the seventh is the Lord your God, in it you shall do no work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So, see, the Sabbath was something that God did right in creation week. He did something special. And we often don't think of the Sabbath as very special. We view it as onerous. Why is God saying, I can't do this, or I can't do that? Or why is this person judging me, saying, I can't do this, and I can't do that? We've totally, totally missed the point of the Sabbath when we think that way. It's not about that at all. A.W. Pink um, in the book, and actually, we've, uh, for any of you that have joined in recent years, you've, you might remember this, but A.W. Pink uh, reflects on the fact that all Ten Commandments were broken in the garden. And he draws them out. It's actually quite interesting how he can show that the property rights that are there, denying God is due, all these things. And so when we hearken back to creation week, we know that God has built his moral law, his ethical law, right into us. And the Ten Commandments is just a reflection of God's ethics. These aren't special rules that he's made. The prohibition against eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a very precise rule that God made that was testing us in that phase that we obviously failed. But yet, the moral commandments that are there, these ten, these ten words that, are, that were given, they're right there. God created them right in his world. The fall changed it, though, and the fall changed the Sabbath. God worked six days, and then he rested. But yet, God was allowing Adam to rest on the first day. That was to show that man's resting was dependent on God's working. So, see, we can rest in this world because God has done so much good for us. The fall changed it. The fall resulted when the Sabbath was formally established as being the last day. So see, God said, okay, man, you want to be like me? Then you be like me. So he made him work six days, and then he rested on the seventh. But it's interesting that with Christ's triumph over sin, with the restoration of the relationship, the undoing of the fall, really, God restored the Sabbath to Sunday, the first day. That's the rightful place because we are dependent on him. Man's rest, his ability to rest that first day of the week, is a promise by God that he will care for us, that he will provide for us. And our desire to do something other on that Sabbath day, to work, is to shake our fist in God's face, say, no, 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 no. I can take care of myself. God just wants us to rest in dependence upon him. And the Sabbath is symbolic of that rest. So see, that's why the Sabbath is important. It's not about the do's and the don'ts. It's about God. It's about us resting in him and not fighting against him for control of our life. 
for control of our product, our work product. The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. Now, this commandment is in an interesting place. This commandment really forms a bridge between the first and the second tablets. We're moving from God and this supernatural commands and this relationship that we have with Him now to a very earthly relationship that we have with our parents. Everybody has parents. You might not have ever known them, but you had them. You're here is proof of the fact that you had parents. So see, you are to honor your father and your mother. This, and and Gary actually, I'm so thankful for the communion meditation today because he pointed out that the ninth commandment is so much more than just what it says. It kind of expands to fill a role in God's world. And in the same way, this honor your father and your mother, it does that same expansion. And it comes with this promise that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You see, there's a principle here. There is a principle that has deep meaning in our world. And especially now, we can see it. We can see the West falling apart in large part because we don't understand and don't embrace these principles. Obedience to parents, obedience to authority, let me generalize it, let me broaden it, leads to a stable society. Disobedience to parents, disrespect of authority, leads to an unstable society. And we see this now. We know that our our society is unstable now. And God right here tells us why. It is ultimately because of a disrespect for authority. It begins right there in the home with our parents. But it expands beyond that, and we disrespect everybody. And one of the things that I believe we Christians in this age now have is a challenge to restore a rightful respect of authority. We have lost the ability to disobey authorities respectfully. We see evidence of it in Acts. The apostles were very respectful in their disobedience to the authorities of their day. And yet we often are very disrespectful in our disobedience of the authorities of our day. And yet God tells us, He commands us to respect these authorities. And so we should be shamed, really, at the disrespect that we show to the lawful authorities that we have. We can disagree with everything that they stand for, with everything that they're doing. They are, by their actions, undermining the commandments that we hold dear but they deserve our respect, and God commands that. And one of the uh, greatest Christians, in my uh, mind anyway, in American history, was Robert E. Lee. He was just such a godly man. You might not appreciate that he was on the South. You might be a you know, pro-Northerner. Um, and yet, Robert E. Lee was a Southerner in some respects, but he was an American very, very deep down. He recognized what was going on, and he accepted and understood it. And yet, he refused to regard the northern troops as enemies. He would not call them enemies. He would direct his generals on the battlefield, and he would say, you are to oppose those people over there. He wouldn't refer to them as enemies because he didn't regard them as enemies. And so in the same way, we must be careful at who we are freely calling our enemies 
Are they really? They may be God's enemies. They may have declared themselves to be God's enemies, but yet even God commands us, love them. The sixth commandment is you shall not murder. And so this is obviously the taking of a life, and there are obvious exceptions to the taking of life. And, and we know three right off the bat. War, war is sanctioned by the Bible. Uh, capital punishment, sanctioned by the Bible. And self-defense, sh- sanctioned by the Bible. And there, it, was, it is taught in Scripture, it is evidenced in Scripture, there are examples of it. But that's it. Other than that, no. We are not to take others' lives. And as a matter of fact, just in regards to the property law, for instance, uh, if you are defending your property at night and you kill the intruder, it said the blood is on the head of the intruder. But if someone breaks into your property in the day and you kill that intruder, the blood is on you unless you can prove that you were defending your life, not your property. God does not allow us to kill other people over property. Even if they're stealing our stuff, they could be right there walking away with our stuff. And I've always thought, you know, is it okay for us to just boom, shoot the person? But no, it's not. You do not have that authority. And it's not just our society that doesn't want you to have that authority. It's God. God's Word teaches us that. Man was made by God. And he has given us, God has given us the dominion mandate. We are a principle in the dominion mandate. Do you know what I mean by that? It means that we are the party that is acting. We're not being acted upon. A few weeks ago, I forget which message, but I spoke of there being God, man, and creation. The three are fundamentally different from one another. Man has been placed at the pinnacle of creation as God's steward. And John mentioned that in the intro earlier about us being stewards of our children and not owners of them. So see, this is why we are not to murder, because we are stewards here. Whose property are you? You've probably seen the t-shirts. Property of Jesus Christ, right? We are property of our God. And every human being on this earth is owned by God, and He claims rights of ownership. And that's why he places in his word laws that govern the way we are to interact with his property, quote-unquote. So see, we, and, and even biblically, God uh, had allowed this in part, I think because of the fall and the hardness of heart and all this, sin in, in a word, but God had allowed man to own man at points, right? And not just indentured servitude. When foreign nations were conquered in war, you got slaves, I mean, in the Old Testament, it speaks very clearly about a conquered foe entering into slavery to the winner, the victor. And yet, this goes against man as being made in God's image. And God, of course, knows that. He's the one that made us in His image. Yet, because of sin, just just as when Christ was asked about why did Moses then allow divorce, what did Jesus say? Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed this. And so God did, obviously, too. And it's the same way with man owning man or man owning woman. It, it is, a, it is a, a violation of the image of God, but yet in, in, a, in the fallen world that we live in, some men needed to be owned in the Old Testament times. 
they did not have responsibility enough to act for themselves. And yet also in the fruits of war, it was set, you, you can own them. There were rules about that though. These are still people. And they were still regarded by God as people. And yet God, even for man interacting with man, condoned us viewing one another as property. But yet we still had to abide by his law in the treatment of that property. So now the seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery. Now there are a lot of sexual crimes outlined in the Bible. I mean, they they practically make you blush. When we read the Bible aloud to our children, sometimes we're thankful that they don't understand words like we understand words. And yet the only sexual crime outlined in the Ten Commandments is that of adultery, is that of cheating on your spouse. And so, see, they all still flow, really, from an abuse of that. We are one flesh when we covenant with our wives, when our wives covenant with their husbands. We are one flesh. And the Bible clearly points out that violations of that, all of these aberrant violations of that, is a violation of that principle, that one flesh principle, where we are covenanting with someone who is not our wife, not our husband, that type of thing. Fidelity in marriage, the seventh commandment, is in some ways analogous to the first commandment. In the seventh commandment, where we're to be faithful to our spouses, in the first commandment, we're to be faithful to our God. And that's why marriage can be patterned. Our relationship with Christ is patterned after marriage because of that that depth of that relationship. With humans, we become one flesh. It's really amazing. That's why it's so shocking when you realize that there will be no marriage or giving a marriage in heaven. Something that is so fundamentally altering us on this earth is subsumed by something greater when we leave this earth and go to heaven. Even the person that was our spouse on this earth that we shared years and years with is in heaven our brother or sister. We're relating to them in a deeper love than we had ever and a deeper intimacy than we had ever experienced on this earth. The eighth commandment says, you shall not steal. And it is this commandment that really presumes the existence of private property rights because you must be stealing something that somebody else owns. And Proverbs is just filled with commendations of good behavior that leads to the accrual of property. Industry, people working hard, people being thrifty with their money, not spending more than they take in. All of this leads to the accumulation of wealth, and that wealth is yours. The Bible clearly states that that's yours. And yet, we live at a time that people want to claim our property for themselves because apparently they don't want to work hard and be industrious, and instead they want to attempt to guilt others who have more property than them into giving it to them. And if you do not give it to me, I will get the state with the power of the sword to assist me in taking it from you. And that's the time we live in. We live at a time where this is rampant. Uh, I was reading in a book, and it said that Karl Marx... Uh, had at one point inherited uh, quite a sum of money, and it was already he was already a, a you know a committed communist, and yet he wrote to Engels, who later provided money for him for like the last fifteen twenty years of his life. He wrote to Engels how he was going to make a killing in the in the British stock market in the London stock market. Well, within a year he was broke, 
and he was going back to Ingalls for more and more money. And it's just ironic that Karl Marx, the father of communism, would have been all greedy about attaining wealth through playing the stock market in London. I mean, the essence of capitalism is this free exchange of trade. And at a stock market, you're essentially gathering on all this capital such that you can try and employ it wisely and make profits and then distribute it to these people that invested in you. And yet, he was unwise. So he probably regarded himself then as a victim of this stock market, and it probably just more entrenched him in his communistic views. But we do not have a right to anyone's property within limits, and I'll get to that later. Now, you shall not bear false witness, and uh, this was what we had uh, discussed earlier in the communion meditation. Now, this can be broadly uh, perceived as lying. You shall not lie. But really, it's, it's a very specific type of lying. It's about committing perjury. You are lying in your society in order to try to gain some advantage over somebody else. You're cheating. You're a cheater. That's what you're doing. And you are proclaiming even per perhaps to a court that this is the truth because you want your way. You're willing to lie to get what it is that you want. But see, even if a neighbor, even if you have a neighbor that everybody hates, it's not your right to lie about that neighbor in order to gain some advantage over them. And that's where you're tested in your resolve. Am I going to stand up for righteousness and for God and for truth, or am I, when it's to my pragmatic best interest, just going to let something go? Or will I stand up and oppose injustice wherever I see it? Um, one of the instances in the Bible that I just love, that I wish we had more of in our society, uh, restitution is one, but the other is that anybody that commits perjury, if they lied, like for instance, the people that were brought in to lie about Christ, try to get the death penalty on him legitimately, those people under Jewish law, if they're found to be lying, are liable for the penalty that would have come upon the person they were trying to get convicted. So they would have died. If you lie in a criminal offense, say, yes, I saw that man kill that person. But then later it comes out in testimony that you've just lied. You don't like that person. You want that person to die. Nowadays, I don't die. I'm free to lie in a court of law about that. They might slap me on the wrist. They might throw me in prison for six months. They might give me a fine, but they're not going to execute me. They're, gonna, they're not going to penalize me as that person who I lied about would have been penalized. It's totally unfair. I love the biblical recompense for lying, that if you perjure yourself and you've caused someone else to suffer harm, you get it exactly as they, you wanted it done to them. The last one is, you shall not covet. And then a list follows, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his male or female servants, various of his animals, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is an interesting commandment. This is the most interesting commandment. Because how on earth are the civil authorities going to enforce this? I heard that you were coveting your neighbor's house. You're going to die for that. This is a commandment that proves the supernatural origination of these Ten Commandments. Because no earthly 
civil government would even bother making such a rule. It's unenforceable. But God can enforce it, can't he? Because God knows our hearts. He knows when we're coveting. This is like the capstone to the commandments because it reveals our heart. And I'm going to get to it more. Now I just want to comment, though, that this one, again, confirms private property because that's exactly what you're coveting. Because you're coveting all that your neighbor has in this regard, and it's wrong. Now, these ten laws, and I've hinted at it already, but they are stated kind of narrow, but then they can each be expanded. The case law in the Bible expands upon them, and yet just logic, you can expand upon these. You can see where God is going, what He's really getting at. It's like expanding the uh, one on respect for parents to respect for authority. That's a logical progression that is warranted. The commandments, though, expand, and then they interact in ways that are interesting. And this is what I mentioned a couple uh, uh, minutes ago about private property. Now, for instance, can respect for parents be taken too far? Parents probably think, I don't see how. <laughs> but uh, years ago, I talked to a, a young woman who had joined us at work, and I was commenting on how we had just gone out to dinner, and the waitress, instead of asking me my children's ages, asked the kids, how old are you, dear? How old are you, son? What was she doing? She was preventing me cheating, because we were at a place where kids have to pay this much or that much. It was a, it was a buffet where for every year of the child's age, they paid a, a, a ratio. And I shared that with this girl. I said, I don't even know my kids' ages. I'm, I asked them, how old are you? But my friend said, oh, my dad would always do that when I was young. He would always lie. He would tell us how old we were such that if the waitress did ask us, we would give them the right answer. Cheater, modeling cheating. But, you know, it's just, it's just so sad. So, see, if, if you're a kid and your dad is forcing you to lie, you might not know any better. You're probably not growing up in the church anyway. But if you were and you knew the difference between right and wrong, I said, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. You're not. You're supposed to obey me. But see, within limits, right? Within biblical limits, we obey these commandments. We don't go beyond them. And so, for instance, even private property, you know, we want pro property to be private. It's ours. You can't tell me what to do with this government. No, 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 no. But people in Israel had their houses torn apart by the authorities. Why? Mold, mildew, things like this. They would force them to destroy their home. God's law came to bear on these people in their home. Now, the thing that I like about this, though, that in this community, these poor people that lost their home would surely have other people help them build it back up again. I mean, that's the world they lived in. And they also had the poor laws and the gleaning laws. Uh, in other words, you're a property owner. You have a field. You go over your field once. God's Word tells you, don't go over it again. The rest of it is for the poor. Don't glean to the corners. Don't go out and pick everything up. Allow that to be there. Jesus and His apostles would walk through and pick the field, the grain from the field. That was legal. You see, your property... You were a steward of it. You didn't have absolute ownership of it. You were caring for it for God. 
And he expected your heart to be big in terms of sharing it, being magnanimous with others. So see, that's what I mean about these. They all come into conflict with what God has told us to do, and that is be merciful. And he even insists on mercy in some of these regards. And he gives us these examples, but those examples, of course, are, are only those. We must carry it into our day. What are ways in which we can be stingy, self-centered, not wanting to share? God wants us to learn from this. So now, there are three aspects uh, in this whole series on Christian materialism that I've focused on, and I actually have a visual aid today. See if I can hang it up high enough so you can see it. And none of the kids found my little secret stash of tape down here, or else I wouldn't have any. If I was to try to peel this off the roll right now, I'd be up here for another 10 minutes. Should get my son up here. Get that up higher. Okay. Now, what I want to do is... First, I'll just familiarize you with this uh, handy-dandy visual aid. Let me tack down the bottom so you can spring up on this. Okay. So these are the commandments. I've, of course, shortened them. Uh, Worship only God. Don't make idols. Honor God's name. Honor the Sabbath. Honor parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't commit perjury, and don't covet. So that's kind of the very brief uh, text reference to each of these. And then I have these three columns. G is for God, P is for property, and M is for man. So what I mean by these terms is this. These are, this is the text, this is the command, but it really operates upon the objects of the command are these. Now, you might differ in detail with me on these, and and obviously you could probably put God in all of them because God has a role in us honoring our parents or if we betray our spouse, that type of thing. But I'm just talking about the primary emphasis of these things. So now, um, first, what I want to point out is the first and the tenth commandments. The first commandment, worship only God. This directs our eyes towards God, off the earth. Worship only God. So see, it elevates you beyond the base, fallen man and woman that you are normally. We all know this. We're all fallen. Even though we're saved, we're still fallen. We still think evil thoughts. We still do evil things. And yet this first commandment points us at to God. God is our North Star. You must never lose sight of the fact that you depend on God. Now, the 10th commandment points our hearts away from property. So, the first commandment points our hearts towards God. This commandment points our hearts away from property. We shouldn't be so in love with property that we are willing to sacrifice our relationship with God or break any of these other commandments. So see, the first and the tenth commandments are very supernatural in their intention. 
worship only God. This is this immaterial being that other people scoff at us for worshiping. And this is saying, don't covet, I'll know. So see, there's no civil sanctions here for coveting, but God will sanction you. God knows your heart. He knows where your lusts are. And if you are indulging in lust, then they're drawing you away from God. This is an indicator of failure that you know in your own hearts whether you're really indulging in this coveting or not. So see, they both involve apostasy, falling away from God. Because if you're not worshiping God as you ought, if you are coveting as you ought not, you're indulging in apostasy. You're falling away from God. The first is a bold, willful choice for many, and yet the tenth is a seduction that works upon all of us, that attempts to steal our hearts away from our God. So now, one thing that I really was struck by when I went through this, when I was deciding what to do for this lesson, was where are the red arrows, the property arrows? Two, four, six, eight, ten. They're interleaved. God has interleaved all of these commandments. You see, you have God, property. God, property. Parents or people, property. Spouse, people, property. Others, property. He knows that we will fall prey to property. It's, it, it, it steals away our hearts. And I believe he's interleaved the ones on property for that reason. Here, we're misusing it. We're trying to worship property instead of God. Here, we are saying, we will earn our property, God, not you. We stand alone on our own two feet. Here, we're destroying God's property. Like I said, God made us all. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And then here, we're stealing other people's property, and here we're, we're basically wanting to steal other people's property. So they're all interwoven. Now, let me go through each one of these a little bit. First, a refusal to worship God alone results in lots of errors, and I'll kind of cover all these three in one swoop. Um, we can instead worship anything else under the sun. If you're a husband, you might worship your wife. If you're a wife, you might worship your husband. If you're parents, you might worship your children. All of those lead to error. All of those lead you deep into sin. You don't realize it necessarily at first, but eventually you destroy that which you worship. Parents who totally indulge their children create spoiled brats that don't love them. I don't know how many times I've tried to talk to people that I see with spoiled children saying, you're doing them nor yourself any favors because they will not love you. You think they'll love you because you're treating them so nicely, but they don't. They won't. When they're adults, they'll hate you for having indulged them. All you've done is corrupted their hearts. So now, uh, a failure to honor the Sabbath leads to anxiety. You know, Philippians, uh, Paul in Philippians tells us, cast all of your cares upon the Lord. It begins here. It begins on that one day of the week where you set aside the cares of this world and you focus exclusively on God. To the degree that you are uncomfortable doing that, where you feel you have to, I have to study for my exam today. My test is tomorrow. I have to prepare for my workload tomorrow morning. You know? To the degree that you buy that lie is a degree to which you are introducing anxiety into your life. That which you want to avoid 
you embrace. And God is just saying, cast it on me. That whole day there is there for that purpose, to remind you how real that instruction from Paul is. Cast all your cares upon the Lord. Now, honoring parents, I already talked earlier about how that leads to stable societies, and without it, uh, societies break down. And also, if we fail to give respect as authorities are due their respect, or to our parents as is their due, our, why should we expect our children to respect us? And so we will likely reap what we sow in this regard. If we are ourselves disrespectful of those that God has commanded us to respect, our children will likely disrespect us. Now, the next table, the commandments uh, 6 through 10, all Western nations once practiced swift justice when it came to murder. I just listened to an audiobook about the invention of the wireless back in like 1899 to 1910. And uh, the wireless was especially helpful to ships because, for instance, the Titanic would not have sunk had, and actually the sinking of the Titanic led to uh, all of the wireless companies having to communicate with one another, and there hadn't been another sinking after that. They formed these societies, they formed these policies. But during that interim, though, that 10 years, this story, Thunderstruck, weaves together two stories. One is Marconi attempting to develop this and productize this to where it can be useful, and this other Dr. Crippen in London who eventually kills, dismembers his wife and leaves her buried in a basement while he escapes to America with his mistress. Well, the wireless caught that guy. He was days ahead of them on a ship, and yet the wireless, everybody in the world who listened to the wireless or who knew what was going on knew that that man and his mistress were on this ship. That captain had prevented the information from getting out. But for days, as he's traveling across the Atlantic, everybody in the world is caught up in this saga of this doctor that's going to be arrested once this uh, Scotland Yard inspector uh, goes on to the ship and takes him custody. Just a beautiful illustration. Within 30 days of that man being found guilty in London, he was hung. Within 30 days. That is swift justice. Yet now you can't even get... uh, Convicted killers executed within 30 years. I mentioned a couple weeks ago this Norwegian killer last year killed 77 people with a bomb and with guns. Found guilty, sentenced to 21 years in prison because that's the maximum allowed under Norwegian law. Now he's in prison. He's been there for only a year, and yet he's written a 27-page letter of how he's being unfairly treated. They only let him have this much free time. They don't let him have a typewriter or a computer. I mean, they're just being so mean to him. And he killed 77 people. Societies aren't going to last that treat killers who have killed 77 people with that type of of, uh, kid gloves. It's just amazing. It's shocking. Uh, We live at a time now also where uh, adultery is rampant. Uh, Many are choosing not to marry. Fornication is the norm. And so human relationships are just really uh, being deteriorated. They're being um, uh, uh, destroyed, and we no longer emulate our relationship with God with our relationship with people on the earth. Uh, To the degree that the Western nations are indulging in that is the degree to which they are obviously falling far, far from that standard that we have. 
And then stealing, we already talked about that as we covered it earlier. Um, it's just, uh, it rots the bones of a society that's based on a work ethic. Um, when, when everybody has a claim on what you're producing, you will stop producing. It's just logical. It's not yours anymore. You're not going to work that hard. So the principles of God's law are at work in our world. Oh, yeah, and let me comment on perjury, too. Um, Chuck Colson went to prison for having an unauthorized access to an FBI file on his person. Because remember, he went to prison for having been Nixon's hatchet man, and he had been improperly investigating people using the power of the FBI. He went to prison for that. Clinton's administration had nearly 1,000 unauthorized FBI files in their possession in preparation for the upcoming election. Nobody even got their wrists slapped over that. You can see how the application of the law is fast falling away from the elite. They, they regard themselves above it, and so they're not subject to it. Colson, by the time he uh, went to prison, he was a Christian. He became a Christian as his, this was all unfolding, and he just came clean. He probably could have fought it. He may, may have even escaped prison. But he, in a sense, wanted to be held accountable for it because he wanted to set the precedent. This is wrong. What I've done is wrong. And yet, in later administrations, it's, it's no longer wrong. Clinton perjured himself concerning the Monica Lewinsky affair. People are in prison for perjury before courts. Never even talked about him going to court. They, they attempted to impeach him, remove him from office, but never even talked about him going to prison. He should have. He perjured himself. Again, this is where our inability to uphold laws is deteriorating our society. Now, instead of going on a little bit more about that, I just want to talk about the positives. Um, the principles of God are at work in our world whether unbelievers want them to be or not, these will stand firm in our world because God is behind them. God will ensure that they stand firm. Even societies, such as like you could think of uh, like India, which is just embedded in idol worship, yet they so adhere to these that God has blessed their society significantly. Even though they have little regard for Him, he has blessed them. And now you've got China growing and throwing off a lot of its communist heritage. And I would guess that I, I, I wouldn't know whether per capita the Christians in China aren't more in number than they are here now. True committed Christians. Yet our governments are all topsy-turvy. We are in a decline, they are in a rise, and so the future looks good for them. They, they, they will likely one day throw off the shackles of communism as the leaven of God's Word and the application of these principles takes root in their society. Whereas uh, for us, we must return to it. It's harder for us to grasp this, but we as Christians know these things or should know these things. Many Christians don't. But to the degree that we embrace them, we want to live them out. We want to uh, be able to winsomely discuss these things with people, prove the benefits of Christian principles at work in our world. So we know that adherence to these, especially these social commandments, lead to peace. You know, 
I, have, I took a class on India a couple years ago because I work with uh, programmers from Hyderabad, India. And they're very proud of the fact that India has not started a major war. I mean, they go back like hundreds and hundreds of years, and they do not point at any war that they've started. They've engaged in wars, but they've typically been attacked. They, and, and this, they say, is because of the fact that they're a peaceful people. But, you know, I was researching property laws, and I think I told you, uh, Indian people are killing one another over their property all the time. It's, it's really horrific. So I don't think they're that peaceful. They just haven't had opportunity, perhaps, to initiate a war with some other nation. My main point about this, though, in the context of Christian materialism, is that God knows us. He knows we fall prey to materialism. So He's given us this interwoven guide to draw our hearts to Him and away from property, to have a rightful view of property. And let's not be in any way bitter or vindictive uh, concerning other people and the way they treat property, the way they abuse God and His commandments. Um, instead, we must model ourselves after Christ, and we must be as uh, forgiving, as loving, in, in despite opposition as He was. And so, yes, let's seek to change our government. Let's seek to influence it. We are, after all, in a republic government. Uh, let's do all we can to make it better. But yet, uh, let's not do so in a harsh, vindictive, manipulative way. Let's do it through prayer. Let's do it through love. Let's change people through love. So, let us now go forth and always remember that uh, God's Word is there to guide us, to lead us, to protect us. And, and don't lose heart. Honor Him. Uh, be faithful to Him, and He will reward you uh, generously. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of your commandments that you have uh, built into this very world, uh, right there in the garden. Uh, the the uh, direction you gave Adam and Eve that they chose to disobey, Lord, has led to what we have, but uh, all of us here would have also uh, taken that path. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, have your name and your word, uh, your Ten Commandments, to be held in high regard by the Christians of this nation. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be a leavening influence in our world. We thank you for Christ, for his many gifts, and we thank you, Lord, that we can serve you uh, with freedom in this country. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and give you thanks. Amen.